0: Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so glad that I'm me. <laughs> My now say to the same person, I'm so glad that I'm not you. Do you know there are 773,692 words in the Bible? If you've got yours with you, please feel free to quickly check it out. (laughs) The Bible is not any old book, it's an instruction book. Those letters, B-I-B-L-E, stand for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It comes in two parts, part one and part two us Christians call it, the Old Testament and the New. Today, I've picked 25 of my all-time favorite words just for you. They are found in part one in a section called Joel, chapter 2, verse 25. These words are for you this morning. These words are for you this morning. These words are for you. They're for you. They're for you. Joel, chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore to you the years... That the locusts have eaten, the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, and the locust swarm. The title of my talk this morning is restoration, restoration, restoration. No, I didn't say relocation, relocation, relocation. <laughs> I recently walked through the gates of the high security Her Majesty's prison. This felt strange for me because for most of my life, I have tried to avoid going into prison. But now it seems these days, I'm doing all that I can to get back in. The female prison officer who searched me, she had a broken nose, she wasn't wearing any makeup, and she smelled a like cheap man's aftershave, if you've got the picture. As she patted me down, it brought back the many memories that I have of when I was searched, only when I was on the inside as an inmate. And I'm going to be honest, I still felt guilty. I don't know why, because my reason for going into prison this time was to speak to the lads. After I'd spoken, there was a round of applause from the prisoners, the prison officers, and those there from the drugs agency. And I'm going to be honest, I felt good because it had gone well. But then I noticed a prison officer walking towards me, clutching a copy of my autobiography close to his chest, with his finger pointing to the title, with his face screwed up, and he wasn't happy. He said, I believe that the other half of this sentence is true, you know. I believe that once you're an addict, you're always an addict. I looked at him and smiled. It wasn't difficult because he was only small. And I said, yes mate, in some cases that is true, but in my case it's not, you see, I was once an addict, and now I'm clean, that's why I've called my book, Once An Addict. He didn't know what to say, and he walked away. (laughs) Think about this! If God can restore somebody like me, all the way back from 15 years of our drug addiction, he certainly can restore somebody like you. When those words were originally spoken out of Job chapter 2 verse 25, God's people were in a bit of a mess. You see, God had asked them to live their lives a certain way. But instead of living their life God's way, they lived their life their own way. So they had to live with the consequences of those choices, but despite that, God promised to restore them back to the place where they once were. And what God was willing to do for a whole community of people way back in the day, is able to do for one individual today. I've been a Christian just a few weeks, and the woman in the church that I was going to, she gave me a greetings card. You know the kind of thing that women do? It's not the kind of thing that blokes do. Well, not my kind of bloke anyhow. And I opened the greetings card. I took it out. And on one side were some personal words from this lady. And I thought, oh, isn't that cute? On the other side of the greetings card were the words out of Joel chapter 2, verse 25. I looked at those words and I read them out loud. I will restore to you the years that the locust have eaten. The great locust, the other locust, the young locust, and the locust swarm. I thought, what's all that about? I read them again, and it still didn't make sense. I read them again, I'm thinking, what's all this about locusts? I read them again, and then, boom, all of a sudden the penny dropped. That each of those four different types of locusts represented to me four different things that had been damaged in my life, because in the Bible, locusts represent destruction and damage. So these were four different things that had been damaged in my life. And God said to me then, Barry, don't worry, it's payback time. And since that day my life, has been one exciting journey of restoration, more restoration, and there's even more restoration to come because I've got news for you, I'm not perfect. That's my wife. See, my road to completion is always under construction. God's always working on something. You may be thinking, well, what kind of things can God restore in my life? He can restore many things. But this morning... I'm just going to look at four things that God can restore for you. Number one, God can restore your confidence. When I was a little kid, I was oozing with confidence. And then as a teenager, I started to drink at school. And then as I got to be an older teenager, I started to smoke weed, take LSD, use amphetamine, and I noticed, even as a young person, as I started to take what we call nowadays recreational drugs, my natural confidence started to drop. And then I left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications, and I started to take harder drugs. I became a heroin addict, and I noticed, as I got into harder drugs, my confidence dropped even lower. I used to gloss over this by using even more drugs, but the more drugs that I used, the less and less confident I became. I remember I was living in a flat in Salford. I'd been an addict for a number of years, and I had to get away because I had some problems with some people. And in those days, I had a free train pass and a free bus pass because of my mental health issues that were related to drug use. And I could go anywhere in Greater Manchester with my free train pass and free bus pass. And I had to get out of town because I had some problems. And I got on a bus that took me into Manchester. I went to Victoria train station and I looked at the places where I could go for free. And the furthest place away I could go for free on my free train pass was Rochdale. I thought, that'll do me. So I got a yellow pages and I looked... And I saw that there was a Salvation Army hostel in Rochdale. So I got a train to Rochdale. I checked into the Salvation Army hostel. I was in there for eight weeks and I got kicked out for having a fight with a scouser. (laughs) And the manager of that particular hostel wrote on my file, Barry Woodward is a very violent man, never ever to be allowed back in. Three weeks ago I was speaking at the AGM... For the Salvation Army in London. All the big cheeses there. And do you know what my opening story was? <laughs> Thank you for allowing me back, back in. And then I ended up in Leopold Court. Which was another hostel. That was dead posh. That that was ensuite. But it was only short term. I couldn't stay in there for a long time, then I got a little flat down, a little cul-de-sac, and I met three people throughout the course of 10 days. One of them was the guy that I got chatting to on a bus. He had a barcelot dot on his face, he had a big fat neck and short, stumpy fingers. One of them was my Nigerian psychiatrist Dr. Samuel Yangyi, and one of them was my next door one neighbor. They were all Christians. my next door but one neighbour invited me to church one morning I turned up at church that day I sat on the second row from the front my next door but neighbour was sat on the end next to me and then these other two people came in and then they started to sing songs and they started to do things that I wasn't used to because I wasn't used to church and I'm thinking as they're doing the kind of stuff that they do in the church that I was going to at that time I'm thinking these guys are all basket cases waving flags around and thinking what are they trying to do direct the planes into what? There was a culture clash, but then this guy gets up, and he said, we believe in a God who can heal. Is there anybody in this room with any issues? I'm thinking, does he want someone with issues? I've got plenty of those. He said, if you only pray for, I'll come to the front. And I remember thinking, what have I got to lose? And I got out of my seat, and I walked to the front. I was the only one stood there. Everybody was watching me. Talk about under pressure. He says, what can I pray with you for? I'm thinking, how long have you got? <laughs> what time do you want to be out of here? And I told him i have been on heroin 15 years, I told him I was on 55 mils of methadone, and I told him that I was suffering from amphetamine psychosis, I used to hear voices. And he put his hand on my head, and I'm thinking, what's he got his hand on my head for? I was going to, get off, stop touching me. And as he's got his hand on my head, he started to pray, and I'll never forget, this was 20 years ago, he started to pray, and he used the phrase... In the name of Jesus after each prayer. He never prayed in the name of Allah. He never prayed prayed in the name of Buddha. He prayed in the name of Jesus. And as he prayed in the name of Jesus, something happened. I remember as he was praying in the name of Jesus for my issues, I started to shake. I started to cry, which is unusual for me. And most of all, I remember having a feeling inside my body like there was fire being poured inside. And as he's praying, I'm thinking, wow, get your hand off my head. Wow. Wow. What's he touching me for? Wow! In the name of Jesus. And then he said, Amen. I was thinking, does that mean he's finished? So I opened my eyes and his under had gone and he sat down and I walked back to my seat and something had changed. I was changed 20 years ago and I stand before you today still changed. You can't tell me that God isn't real. You can't tell me that God isn't alive because he's real, he's active and he's alive in the life of individuals he's alive and he's so well so many things changed from that day onwards one of the main things that changed was the confidence that I'd lost came back you see God restored my confidence there are many things in this world that can take away our confidence for me it was drugs for you it might be something else listen 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 Whatever it is that's taking your confidence away, God can restore it. There's a proverb that says, the Lord will be your confidence. How does that work? Well, once you give God consent to come in, you gain a confidence that comes directly from God. The Bible says, such confidence is ours through Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? God with skin on. What things can God restore in your life? He can restore your confidence, number two. He can restore your self-esteem. I think I've got one of the best jobs in the world. I get to travel and speak at about 150 events a year throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. And I get to meet some really, really interesting people. I also get to meet a lot of people who have got low self-esteem. There's lots of reasons why somebody may have low self-esteem. It could be that when you were young, you were told you're hopeless, you are, you're never going to make anything of, anything of yourself. It could be that you've been told that you're ugly. It could be that you've been in a relationship, and that relationship has not your self-esteem for six. There are so many reasons why somebody may have low self-esteem. Listen, when God intervenes with your life, you start to put a price back on your own head, you start to value yourself and you get back your, I am a somebody, I am a somebody, I am a somebody mentality, give somebody a nudge, not a slap, just say to them, you better watch out because I am a somebody, you're a somebody in the eyes of God. Let me use the words of the great civil rights leader and pioneer, Martin Luther King. He said, I've come back to tell you that you are a somebody. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself today. When God looks at you, he sees you as a somebody. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. When God looks at you, he sees you as a somebody. It doesn't matter what you look like. That's good news for some of you men. When God looks at you, he sees you as a somebody. I was speaking in a church. I can't tell you where it was, just in case you're from Accrington. (laughs) The roughest church I've ever been to. I remember pulling up in my car in the car park. Group four security were in the car park. Rough. Four of them came to, to my car and picked up my bags and they chaperoned me into the church. There was bouncers on the door of the church. It was rough. I get invited to all the glamorous places. I've got a friend called J. John. He was in Hawaii. It's not fair. Here I am in Accrington. Many are called and fewer chosen. What's all that about? I remember going into the church building and it was packed. Oh, it was rough though. Rough. And they, they, they took me to the front row, which I always try and avoid sitting on, but they took me to the front row. I remember they started to sing songs and I looked back at the sea of faces. You should have seen them. Scars, marks and tattoos on number two haircuts. And that was just the women. (laughs) Do you know what I said to them? God looks at you today. It doesn't matter what you look like. And he sees you as a somebody. You see, you're a somebody in the eyes of God. God doesn't see you as you see yourself. He sees you differently. The Bible says that man looks to the outward appearance. But God looks to the heart. Problem with others, sometimes when we look into the mirror, we see ourselves as a Mark 1 Ford Escort, on a scrap heap, rusty wheels, bald tyres, decaying bodywork the clapped out engine we know petrol that's how we see ourselves sometimes when we look into the mirror, that's not how God sees us he sees us differently, he sees us as a brand spanky new Ferrari gleaming red bodywork Slick tyres, alloy wheels, customised engine on the forecourt of a car showroom with no petrol. You see, all the potential is there. But what we need is the petrol of God in our life, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in and he releases all that potential. That's been laid dormant for years and you become that person that God designed you to be before you messed up and made those mistakes, and you start to see yourself how God sees you, you start to put a price back on your own head, you start to value yourself. I spent so many years of my life being a nobody. I don't see myself as a nobody anymore. Because my Bible tells me that I'm a member of God's family. My Bible tells me that I've been grafted in. My Bible tells me that I'm in Christ. That I'm his most treasured possession. I'm a somebody in the eyes of God. Spent so many years of my life being a nobody, but I'm not a nobody anymore. Spent so many years being one of the Manchester boys. Well, I'm one of God's boys now. I get invited to speak at all kinds of places. I was invited to speak about eight years ago at the Lord Mayor of Manchester's prayer breakfast. Keynote speaker. Oh. Ooh. I remember turning up I had my little bag with me with books in and stuff and set the books up at the back and somebody was helping and there was tables set up, there was the Lord Mayor of this place here with his bling round his neck and then there was a table over here with the Lord Mayor of that place from there with her bling round her neck and there was a table here and a table there, that all sat there with the bling on. There was a table for the police, I didn't sit on that table. <laughs> got any police in here this morning? I bet we have, haven't we? I may be saved, but I'm not that saved. (laughs) Joke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was great, and I spoke, and we had a bit of a laugh, and I went to my table at the end, and they're all coming up to me, shaking my hand, all the mayors queuing up, buying my books. Put the price up just for that morning. (laughs) Take the lad out of Manchester, but you can't take the Manchester out of the lad. (laughs) double price (laughs) and then as they were shaking my hand inside I was thinking I'm equal with you you may have a bit of tin round your neck and you may be representing I'm not against all of that but I know now how valued I am in God because I'm seeing myself how God sees me God values me he values you you may have a face that only a mother can love lad God values you. God intervenes. You put a price back on your own head. you. Already don't start to see yourself how God sees you. And You get back your eye on somebody mentality. What things can, God can, what things can God restore in your life? He can restore your confidence. He can restore your self-esteem. And number three, God can restore broken relationships. There are two kinds of relationships that God is concerned about. The first is the vertical one that you have with him. And the second is the horizontal relationship that you have with people. One day this guy came to Jesus, he said, Jesus, 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 that's the Amplified version. <laughs> Which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And instead of giving one of the commandments, Jesus gave two to summarise the ten. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, it is the first, and the second is to love your neighbour as yourself. So we are to love the Lord our God, that's the main relationship. But God is concerned about, the vertical relationship that you have with him. It's always been the same since the beginning of time. Let's go right back to the original day in the Garden of Eden. God and Adam had a tight relationship going on in the garden. They were tight. One day, Adam and God was walking in the garden, and Adam looked up to God and he said, God, God said, what? He said, God, why have you made Eve so pretty? He said, well, Adam, because I wanted you to like her. But then Adam said, but why have you made her so stupid? And God said, because of what he does, to so like you. <laughs> they were in the garden, and God said, you can eat off any of these trees, any of them, except for that one tree, because that one tree will give you knowledge of good, and e- of, of good and evil. But they couldn't resist, could they? They were like you, they were like me, they couldn't resist the temptation, and they ate off that one wrong tree, and it was at that point when all of life's faults, flaws, and failures spilled out into the world. That's why Jesus had to come. To mop up the mess that they made. His name was Judge, quote, send them down, unquote, Jelland. In the 80s and 90s, he had a serious reputation amongst the Manchester criminal underworld because he was one of the most hard-line judges. Everybody who stood before Judge Jelland, he would send down. I've been in strange ways for a string of offences at that time for, hmm, well, probably offences longer than both my arms and yours' arms too as well. And then the news came in after, back and two to court, back and two to court, back and two to court. I'm for six months or something like that. Then the news came in that I was going to be in courtroom number one, Manchester Crown Court. Courtroom one, that's a serious court. And I to guess who my judge was. Judge, send him down, Jelland. Imagine you're in the courtroom. I'm stood in the dock trying to look really innocent. Don't give me a custodial sentence, Judge. He sat behind his bench, let me describe him to you, he was about 5 foot 1, 21 stone, 62 years of age, he had the biggest nose you've ever seen, and on the end of his big nose he had a pair of reading glasses that he would balance just about on the end of this massive nose, he was just about looking over the bench. And he pointed his fat wrinkly finger at me, and he says, Barry Woodward. You've been found guilty of this, that and the other and for this I sentence you to X amount of time in prison. I remember the feeling well. My heart began to pound. I began to sweat. As that policeman took me below the courtroom, put me in the holding cell, I was put in the sweat box and taken to strange ways only on the main side rather than the remand side. But I want us to use our imaginations in here today. You're sat in the courtroom with me. I'm stood in the dock. Looking really innocent. Judge Jelland is sat behind his bench. His fat, wrinkly finger is pointing at me. And then he carries on. I sentence you. Points his finger. Imagine, use your imaginations. I'm sitting in the, in the dock. He's sat behind his bench. And then he goes, I sentence. And bef- before he finishes, Passing his sentence on me, the door opens at the back of the courtroom, and the hinges squeak. And you're nosy like me, so you look at the back, see what's going on. There's a silence. It's quiet. And then this guy comes walking in through the door to the dock where I'm stood. He opens the dock. He steps into the dock. He puts his hand in his back pocket. He pulls out his wallet. And he says, there you go, buddy, there's a tenner. You can go. I'd have been off like a shot. It was only two and a half quid to where I lived, did you? Profit already. So I'm now legging it out. Do we leg it here? Put your hand up if you leg it. Put your hand up if you vomit. it. Posh ones that like to trot. But legging out of that front door. But now he's stood in the dock in my place. And Judge Yellen's fat wrinkly finger is pointing at him. Pointing at him and then he continues. And for this I sentence you. And he gives this guy the most extreme sentence that he can give him. He gives him the sentence of death. But he stands there takes it like a man. This is exactly what God did. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, God became a man. His name is Jesus. And he came into the courtroom of this world and he stood in the dock to take the rap for you so that you could get off scot-free. See, Dad, died on that cross to pay the price for all your faults, all your flaws, and for all your failures. His final words on this earth were, it is finished. At that point, God's instruction book tells us, the temple curtain was ripped. It was symbolic to the relationship. The rip, that was symbolic to the relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. It It was symbolic to the relationship being restored. And from that point on, how amazing is that? From that point on, people like you, even people like me, can get to know God in our one. where we know him, can have a relationship with him. That's the main relationship that God is concerned about. The vertical relationship that you have with him is also concerned about the horizontal relationships that you have with people. But I've learnt this, once you get that one right, he then gets busy and he restores those right relationships. I use the word right because God doesn't restore every relationship in your life. He doesn't. Some of those relationships need to be left in your past, but I've learned also that what he doesn't restore, he replaces. That's part of the restoration, restoration, restoration process for some of us. But he does restore those right relationships. I've seen God do this with me and my dad. Me and my dad were close when I was a kid. He was brought up. In Stainforth, which is in Doncaster, a mining community. His dad was a miner, his brother was a miner. And I've seen a picture of his mother and she could have been a miner too. (laughs) He got drafted into the army, got stationed in Eccles, in Salford. Met my mum one night in a club. She was from Salford, they started to go out. When he left the army, they moved to Yorkshire. Lived in Keithley for seven or eight years. My brothers were born there, then they moved back to Salford. That's where I was born. And we were close when I was a kid. I spent a lot of time with him. I was the youngest out of three lads. So he played a lot of rugby and he refereed. He was a proper sportsman. And I'd go with him. But that all changed when I became a heroin addict. I remember I'd been in the police cells in Manchester, CDCs. I always got nicked on a Friday. That I means I had to wait till Monday to get bail. It seemed I always got nicked on a Friday. I got nicked up one Friday went to court on the Monday got bail I thought I need some money I'm not feeling well I was withdrawing from heroin I'll go and see me mum. not seen her for ages I was living in Hume at the time when I got to me mum and dad's house me mum wasn't in but me dad wasn't thinking oh I didn't want to see me dad and we had a little bit of a conversation that turned into a massive argument because I would always try and justify my drug use you're just old fashioned you dad you like to have a drink. People of my age like to take drugs. It's, it's normal. It's just me living my life. You've lived your life. I'm going to live my life. You justify it. And we had this conversation that turned into a massive argument. And he said, of all the things in the world you've turned out to be, you've turned out to be a blankety blank, blank, blankety blank, blank, blankety blank, blank. He wasn't happy. Smack it. You're not my son anymore. And he disowned me. And I was okay with that. Because that gave me a license to really live my life my own way. We had no contact for seven years. That was okay for me because I was living in Moss Side, involved with drug dealing, involved with all the madness of crime. And I just got lower and lower into that murky world. Kind of disappeared off the face of the normal map. There is an underworld out there. And I was very in the core of that. I was living in the core of that underworld. And then after seven years, we, we kind of made a little bit of contact. But he still wasn't happy. The relationship was still broken. And then I became a Christian. I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and tell my dad. So I got into my car. I drove to Salford, parked my car in the street, walked across the road, through the front door, into the front room. My daddy sat in his armchair with his tracky bottoms on, reading the newspaper and watching the news at the same time. I sat on the floor next to the dog in front of the city. I looked up to my dad, I said, Dad. He said, What? I said, Dad, I've become a Christian. Do you know when you know somebody well and you know what they're thinking? He folded the corner of that newspaper down and he looked at me, shaking his head. Here we go again. What drugs is he on now? And then I said, Dad, Dad, one day, Dad, I'm gonna write a book. He looked at me a second time and he shook his head. He was disgusted. Oh no. What's he on now? So then I went off to work with an organisation in Twistle. Try saying that without your teeth in. <laughs> Doing evangelism, because you talk about mission I'm a missionary to the UK. This is my mission field. Wesley's will with his parish. My, the UK is my Parish and I, I, I cut my teeth on public speaking I did tent missions, I did door work I did outreach weekends, I did skills weeks I did it all there within that one year and wherever I was I'd ring my dad letting him know that my faith wasn't a fad letting him know that our faith was real because I've learnt this as well that when you've broken somebody's trust it's your job to be intentional about building that trust back up again it's not going to happen overnight, it takes time so I started to build that trust back up. Then I went to Cliff Bible College. Oh, my first day at Cliff College. They showed me to my room. Third floor. The sun was shining. Dead posh. Squirrels. <laughs> Behind the mold lawn. Jumping from one tree to the next. And I thought, you don't see many of them in Salford. <laughs> if you did, you'd get your gun out. and <laughs> target so practice. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe. Yeah. Not now, anyhow. Dead posh. Did my first assignment. I couldn't use a computer then. I had to do it by hand, and I had to use a ruler to keep my writing straight. But actually, the content of the assignment was good. I got a really good mark. I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ring my dad. I rang my dad. I said, Dad. He said, what? I said, Dad, I've got a really good mark for my first assignment at Cliff Bible College. He said, What have your son. I said, yeah. Then, they sent, up me to do, then they, sent, they sent me to do a little mission in Pity Head in Scotland. I said, Dan, I'm going to be speaking tonight to a group of about 100 people. I rang him. He said, Who are you, son? Then I came back, second assignment. Did that by hand. Got a good mark. I realised that I had a brain. He said, Got to give me a second chance. And I was going to make the best of it. So every time I got a mark for an assignment, I'd ring my dad because I'm building that trust back up. I'm letting him see that my faith isn't a fad. I've broke that trust. It's my responsibility to build it back up with him. Dad, I'm graduating from Cliff Bible College. I learned how to use computers at Cliff. Best thing I ever did. Will you come to my graduation? He says, yeah, I'll come. So, and he came. Well, he kind of came. He we was sat at the back. This big marquee. 500 people. Sun was shining. He was sat at the back smoking roll-ups. <laughs> but he was there. And he saw me graduate. And that was in 1999. And I'd been busy setting up a charity in my final year at college to act as an administration framework, which is still functioning now. Because I needed to be accountable, I needed to do everything right, and I wanted to be able to work right across the denominational spectrum and network spectrum and work in prisons. I didn't want to kind of get locked into, I wanted the freedom. We had £10 in the bank. And in the early days, I did do a lot of stuff abroad. Dad, I'm in America now. Oh, are you, son? Come back for a month, go back. Dad, I'm in India now. Dad, I'm in Sri Lanka now. Dad, I'm in Ibiza, don't get worried. <laughs> Wherever I was, I'd ring him to build that trust back up, build that trust back up. 2009, I got a phone call, i just spoke in South Wales. Early hours of the morning, I remember I was driving back. It was our kid, he never rings me mobile, Like kid, he's too tight. I thought, what's he ringing me for? So I stopped the car, didn't have my hands free then. I said, all right, our kid, what are you doing ringing me? He said, I've just rang to tell you, my dad's had a fall. You need to go and see him. I says, okay, well, I'm on my way back from South Wales. I'll pop in in the morning. So early doors, I'm an early riser. I get up early. I'm in the office for seven at the latest. Something's happened to me since I've become a Christian. I can't wait for the day to start. I've been given a purpose. God's plan's been activated in my life. It's so exciting. What a journey it's been. So I got up early that day, I thought i will go and see my dad before I go to work drives me car to Salford Pass. In the street, walks across the road through the front door, into the front room. Into the front room, my dad isn't sat in his armchair. Unusual. So went upstairs. Dad, you all right? He was in his bedroom. What's happening? Is that a fall? I've had a fall. I'll be all right though. Son, don't worry about me. I said, Dad, you need to go and see your doctor if you had a fall. I said, oh, I'll be all right. He, he didn't like doctors. He, you know, he was old-fashioned. A few more days passed. they had another fall. Then he had another fall. And he kept having these falls. And he kept saying, "It's me vertigo." Got a phone call from our kid. Barry, my dad's had another fall. He's in hospital. We need to go and see him. So I bombed it down to Salford Royal Hospital. Well, actually, Ope Hospital. It's changed its name recently. My dad is sat next to his bed in a wheelchair with a gown on. Our kid's there. I'm chatting with my dad. Dad, what's that? He said, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Then this doctor came out. She was about 12 years old. Tom, I need to have a chat with you. I just need to take you somewhere private. Do you want to come on your own? He says, no, I, whatever you can say in front of me. You can say anything in front of my lads. Whatever you can say in front of me. So we wheeled him into this room. He said, Tom, you've got a brain tumour. And I've learnt through this whole process that the right side of your brain controls the left side of your body. So this brain tumor was on the right side of his brain and his leg kept. That's why he was falling. He said, how long have I got? She said, with treatment six months without treatment a couple of months he said I don't want treatment so wherever I was in the UK I need to and I was intentional whether on the way here or on the way back I wanted to spend as much time with my dad we brought his bed down eventually we got a bed from the hospital put it in the back room my dad Tom Tommy Woodward came home from one meeting early hours of the morning his body clock was all over the place he wasn't sleeping proper as you could imagine, because he was just I remember parking my car in the street, walking across the road through the front door about one o'clock in the morning it was and the light was on in the hallway, I thought what's the light doing in the hallway I had a key, I put the three through key in the door opened the door, my daddy sat in the hallway as soon as I walked through the door he said what's all this about this effing God of yours he's not a Christian remember he says can you help me find him I says yeah I can dad he said have you helped many, I said yeah just a few I said, I'm going to come back in the morning. Oh, I remember driving home that night, tears streaming down my face. This is my dad. And I, over the years, for the years, I'd, try, I'd, I'd, I'd he'd heard me speak, I'd give him CDs, I'd done all kinds of things, give him videos, I'd done all kinds of things to get him in, but he didn't want to know, but he got this brain tumour and it changed the way that he was thinking. Now he's asking me, can I help him? find God, of course I can, Dad. The next morning, I gets up early, I gets in my car, drives to Salford, parks it in the street, walks through the front door, walks into the back room, got my dad out of his bed, put him in his wheelchair, wheeled him through to the front room, put him in his armchair. And I said, Dan, I'm going to pray with you. Do you know, I've spoken to so big events. It's never about the size of, a, of, of an event for me. Because I've spoken at Spring Harvest and all of those kind of places. And, and it, it, it's never about the size of the crowd. Because the biggest audience I've ever spoken to was an audience of one. His name was Tommy Woodward. I'll never forget, I knelt on the side of his, of his armchair. And I said, Dad, I'm going to pray with you now. Dad, I'm going to pray this prayer. God's going to become real to so you. You're going to pray this prayer. And this is me dad. Cauliflower ears. Big, thick, set guy. Well, he wasn't until he got cancer, but he was always big. They called him tiny in the army. I used to bite his ears when I was a kid and he couldn't feel them. Because they were him Because they'd been, you know, busted through rugby. And I put my hand on his hairy arm. He's got his hand on my arm. I said, Dad, I'm going to pray with you. And he says... Son, I want you to know, son, that I love you. My dad never told me that he loved me. That's not our criticism. He told me once. We knew that he loved us. He was a man's man. Men don't do that kind of thing in my dad's family. He says, I love you, son, and I want you to know that I'm proud of you. I said, Dad, I'm going to pray this prayer. And I prayed the prayer of commitment and tears was running down his face. Three days later, he died. But do you know, for me, I got that relationship right with God. And then what, what did God do? He, he restored that right relationship with my dad. Three days before he died, he told me that he was proud of me.
1: And that he loved me.
0: Where will my dad be now? Five to Twelve. What time does rugby come on? Is rugby on yet? I don't know. He'll be sat in his armchair in heaven with his tracky bottoms on with his leg over the side with the TV on reading the newspaper watching the news waiting for the sport to start on a Sunday afternoon. Get that one right with God. And he gets busy building those right relationships with others. What things can God restore in life? He can restore many things. I'm just touching on four things. It can restore our confidence. It can restore our self-esteem. It can restore broken relationships. And finally, it can restore our health. The Bible says, it can restore our health and heal our wounds. God can heal problems with our mind. I heard voices for nine years. Real intense, evil, aggressive voices. In fact, if you want to read about it, you can buy my book. For every one book you buy, we send two to prisons. we sent four to three thousand copies of my book, once an addict out to prisoners. And we keep chipping away, keep chipping away. we just released a new book last week, 13 stories from people who've been in the background of addiction. Mine's one of them. Real encouraging stories. And if you want want to be encouraged, is God real, is God alive, read those stories. Recent stuff as well. These are guys that I'm mentoring as well as evangelists. we have got some of them in the jails. Nine years, I heard voices. I went to that church, got prayed for, and I haven't heard voices since until I got married to my wife. (laughs) Now they've come back. He can heal our minds, he can heal our bodies, he can heal disorders. When Jesus was on this earth, in the flesh, he spent a lot of time praying for people. There was a time when he was in the synagogue, which is a cousin to the church of today, and there was a guy there with chronic arthritis, and Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And the Bible says, he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. He also prayed for the guy who was blind. Some of you know the story. And then Jesus, after praying for him, said, what do you see? And he said, I see like trees walking around. So Jesus prayed a second time, and the Bible says his sight was completely restored, because he started to see people. So he prayed a second time. It encourages me to pray for people more than once, that. 25 of my all-time favorite words, just for you. Joel, chapter 2, verse 25. These are for you this morning. These are for you. These are for you. These are for you. These are for you. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust, the young locust, the other locusts, and the locust swarm. The title of my message today has been Restoration, Restoration, Restoration. Please stand. No going outside for a smoke just yet. <laughs> the main relationship that God is concerned about is the vertical relationship that you have with him. But he gives us a choice. If God was a burglar, he'd wait for it to go dark, and he'd come and he'd try and kick in the back door. If he couldn't kick in the back door, he'd try and kick in the side door. If he couldn't kick in the doors, he'd try and jemmy in through the downstairs windows. That's if God was a burglar. But God is not a burglar. God will never try and burgle his way into anybody's life. He'll only ever come in through the legal entry. The legal entry to a house is usually the front door. The legal entry to a life, the front door to a life is your will. And he stands at that front door and he knocks on that legal entry and he gives you a choice. He knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he waits for you to make a decision. He, makes, he waits for you to open the door and he waits for you to give him consent to come in. And when you give him consent to come into your life, he gets busy. He restores those things that need to be restored. He starts to mend those things that have been broken. He sits in the driving seat. He takes hold of our steering wheel and he brings joy to our journey. And he gives us, he gives us the backbone that we need when stuff hits the fan. Because we know that he's there with us. We know that he's in the driving seat. He stands at the door and he knocks. And he knocks and he knocks. I'm going to finish by praying a prayer. It could be that there's some people in here who have never given God consent to come into their life. He's not a burglar. He'll never try and burgle his way in. It could be that there's some people in here who've been attending this church and you're enjoying coming to this church, enjoying the music, enjoying the talks, and finding a bit of solace coming into a a, a Christian building. That's great that you're here and you're doing that, but that's not it. What is it? You knowing God in your knower you knowing God personally, then out of that, you come to church. You enjoy the music and the messages and you make connections and you do all of that stuff. And I think God's knocking on the door of some of your lives right now. He wants to come in. But you need to park your pride outside because your pride, just like my dad's for all those years, stopped him connecting with God. It was only when a crisis came that he did it. Don't wait for a crisis in your life. Do it now. I'm going to pray a prayer. Two groups of people are going to pray this prayer with me. The first group of those people who have never prayed a prayer before. You've never given God consent to come in. You may have prayed a crisis prayer, like I used to pray, God, give me bail. No, God, I want Baal. So I've prayed, this isn't a crisis prayer, this is a connection prayer, connecting with God. It could be that you've never prayed a prayer where you've given God consent to come in, but you have prayed crisis prayers. Well, you can pray this prayer, you can give God consent to come in. The second group of people those people who have prayed a prayer in the past. You've given your life to God, but right now you're not cutting it. You're not living how God wants you to live. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm not, I'm not here to give you an hour time at all. All I'm here to say to the second group is just pray this prayer. Get back on track. And God will forgive and forget. You'll wipe the slate clean and you just leave this place with, a, with the new phase of your Christian journey kicking in. Everybody else, you make up the third group. There's two groups going to pray with me. The first group, those people who've never prayed a prayer before, you're going to pray this prayer with me. The second group are those people who have prayed a prayer. You have prayed this prayer before, but you're not cutting it. You're not living our God wants you to live. You're going to pray this prayer to get back on track. And everybody else, you are the third group. You're going to pray to encourage the first group and the second group. Let's bow our heads. And let's pray this prayer. Let's park our pride outside. Don't allow your pride to stop you connecting with God. Whether you're 9, 19 or 99, you can pray this prayer with me. Here we go. Repeat after me, phrase by phrase. Dear God, I come to you today and I admit that I'm not perfect. Forgive me for my faults, for my flaws. And for my failures. Wipe my slate clean. God today. I've heard you knocking. On my front door. And I'm opening my door. And I'm giving you consent. To come in. Sit in my driving seat. Take hold of my steering wheel. And restore those things. That need to be restored. While their heads are bowed, no looking around. If you've prayed that prayer, you're part of the first group or the second group. Can you raise your hand so I can see it as quickly as you can? have got one here, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Put your hands down. There may be a few more if you prayed that prayer. I'm going to count down ten seconds. There's about eleven people already raised their hands. If you're part of the first group of the second group, you've raised your hands. I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to count down 10 seconds to give you 10 extra seconds. That's all. Just to raise your hand if you've not already raised it. If you've raised it once, you don't need to raise it again. But if you're part of the first group of the second group and you've prayed that prayer and you didn't raise your hand the first time, as I count down 10 seconds, it's giving you 10 extra seconds just to raise your hand. Anybody else prayed that prayer? Raise your hand so I can see it. 10. Another one here. Another three. Anybody else? As I count down. Nine, eight, seven. Another one. Thank you. Seven, six, five. Anybody else? Another one. Four, three, two. Anybody else? One. got 16 people all together. I'm going to count to three. On the point of three, all those 16 people... Those who raise your hands in the first group, those who raise your hands in the second group, if you can leave your seats and walk out of the back door, or even come to this side door, because I want you to go through into the room at the side here, someone from the church is going to come and stand with you. As a charity, we've brought a DVD that we want to give you called, What's Next? Because people, what do I do next after praying that prayer? Well, I can't do everything in one day, so I explain on that DVD what you need to do next. We also want to give you a booklet called, Making the Connection. Uh, it's like a little book that explains the Christian faith in a very simple but creative way, wrote by J. John. We want to give you one of those, and someone wants to chat with you from the church. But it's important that you go. We've got 16 people. Are we ready? If it's easier for you to go out that door and come on the side, but you're aiming for this area to walk through here, and someone's going to meet you. Ready? One, two, three. You go as quickly as you can. Let's give them a round of applause as they go out. All those people who prayed that prayer, that's fantastic. That's wonderful.